Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Before we introduce our guest and talk about what our guest had to say, we need to tell our listeners about our live event coming up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on October 17th, 2019. Excellent idea. So we are going to be celebrating our 100th episode of the Behavioral Grooves podcast. We're going to be doing that in front of a live audience in Philadelphia. Our confirmed guests so far include one of my all-time favorite guests, Annie Duke. Truly. And then also Lila Gleitman. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, Annie is the renowned author of Thinking in Bets, which is one of my favorite books. I think it's one of yours as also, Tim. Totally. And she is also, as we can say, one of our favorite guests and actually one of our listeners' favorite guests because she is in the top five, top four, I think. She continues to be in the top four. Yes. So so. our listeners love that episode as well. And Lila Gleitman, you know, is a linguistics expert who has spent the majority of her career at the University of Pennsylvania Psychology Department. Department. So you may not think that that's a big deal, but honestly, she has a list of accomplishments that is a mile long. And recognitions for her work on human language just, you know, tops all living academics. She's really quite amazing. Um, more importantly, maybe the most important thing is that Lila was the person who single-handedly introduced the word fuck into the English dictionary. Now that is fucking impressive. <laughs> that is fucking impressive. All right. This is going to get a, uh, a, 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 a explicit rating, explicit rating, but that's okay. We are, we are a grown up <laughs> podcast. Here we go. Um, and we've extended invitations to a few more guests. Uh, and so we will keep you informed and obviously, uh, you can go out uh, to our website, www.behavioralgrooves.com, to check out all of the latest details. You can sign up through Meetup uh, page that we have in Philadelphia if you're in Philadelphia. We hope to see you at the show. Um, if you're in Philadelphia and you can make it, we would love to have you there. Yeah, all those links will be in the show notes. They'll be in the show notes as well. All right, so Tim, to get back into our regular kind of behavioral grooves uh, introduction here. introduction okay i have a question for you is this multiple choice or a short essay uh, <laughs> y- however you want to answer it <laughs> okay. if you want to go abc uh, it's super easy yeah uh, yeah i don't know <laughs> okay <laughs> All right. what is it in your consulting work with corporations what do you think is the bigger risk people doing things that they shouldn't do or people not doing the things that they should do You know, I've tended to see people holding back. It's Hmm. more common for me to see people with their heads down and trying to avoid being criticized uh, for anything less than success, because anything less than success gets punished, you know, typically. So, you know, I did some work at a, um, a global company that makes explosives. And for many reasons, the culture was highly sensitive to following the rules because they're making explosives. It's really, really dangerous stuff. But unfortunately, that ethos also bled into employee satisfaction. And so all the rules were very much controlling rules rather than lifting up rules. Um, so it, it went way beyond physical safety. So I think that, that, that that's the example that comes to my mind. And that's a topic that we are going to talk about with our guest, Christian Hunt. Christian has worked in risk assessment jobs with financial institutions for most of his career until he got bitten by the behavioral science bug. Don't you love it? Is that is that a risk? Is, is there a risk of getting bitten by the behavioral science bug that we need to take care of? It's an influenza. Yes, uh, it's certainly something that, that you and I got bit by. On a totally separate note, we wanted to let you know that we encountered some unexplainable internet troubles that caused Christian's voice to not be recorded while Kurt's and my voices were recorded for our chat about music. But we wanted to share what we have because it was such a fun discussion. Our apologies to Christian for not being able to share his greatest behavioral science hits with us. We'll cover every one of them in a future episode. All right, so with that, sit back with a not-so-risky glass of your favorite listening beverage and enjoy our discussion with Christian Hunt. Christian Hunt, welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure to be here. It is great to have you here. We're going to start with a couple of speed round questions. Bicycle or unicycle? Motorcycle. Oh! 
Okay, so is that oh, is a that, rule breaker? Is that a Harley? Is that a BMW? Is that a Honda? What a what nomad, type? Uh, it is it is several because one is never enough. Um, so actually, your your first two guesses were spot on. Uh, so I have a, a Harley and a BMW and a oh. um, a Royal Enfield just to get a, a classic British one in there as well. Oh my gosh! Very wow. nice. Very nice. Okay. All right. I can guess the answer to this one already, but coffee or tea? Coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon. Yeah. Oh, this is like a Michael Hallsworth thing. I it think is. he was, you know, coffee before 10, after 3, tea, or something, or something like that. Okay. Uh, laptop, if, which would you rather give up? A laptop or an iPhone? Uh, give up a laptop any day. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. And, and final speed round question Which is a bigger risk? The risk of people doing things they shouldn't or people not doing the things they should. People not doing the things they should. And I took that from a, a little uh, cartoon that you had posted up there. I thought that was fantastic. So so why is it that, that there's a bigger risk of not doing the things they should? What, what, what goes into that? Because oh, I, th- I think we associate... Uh, you know, people screwing up, which is sort of my, my, my term for everything from, from accidentally doing things to deliberately doing things we don't want them to. We, we, you know, we, we focus very much on action, but, but I think inaction is equally important to think about. And, and, you know, doing nothing is a choice. And so I think it's important to, to focus that. I mean, you can, you can do bad things either way, but I just think that one gets forgotten about. And people sometimes think if they, if they sit on something, if they don't take a decision, if they kind of duck it, that that's, that's somehow better. And, and actually the consequences of not engaging with stuff is, is I think in many cases greater. And why is that? Why, why are the consequences of inaction, why do they tend to be greater than the consequences of, of the wrong action? Well, <laughs> I think it's 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 just purely the the sort of action, you know. We we all know this action bias, right? It, action yep. feels like a positive thing. Um, inaction, sort of. I, I think there's often less commitment to inaction because you're kind of hiding from it. So, um, if I positively decide to do something, I've thought about the consequences of doing it. I kind of engage with it a bit more. If I'm choosing not to do something, my level of engagement with that is by default less. And I just think that's potentially more dangerous because it's, you know, there's less thought going into it in many respects. And do you think it gives people an out? They kind of say, oh, I didn't do anything. So therefore, whatever happens isn't isn't a result of me not doing anything. So yeah, it's a totally, totally. psychological I, safe, right? I think, yeah. And if you look at, you know, we have this um, and let, let's, you know, we just talk politics for two seconds because I know you guys love that. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's, you know, if you look at what's going on in the UK at the moment, we're, we're facing this, this, this crisis and we have a heck of a lot of people doing nothing. Right. Just literally kicking the can down the road and waiting for stuff to happen. And I think you can kind of see the consequences of that you, you, leadership vacuum. You know, things don't happen. It, it's all consuming. And, and so so for me, inaction is 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 just as bad and just as common. And that's why, you know, my definition of, of, of the term human risk, I wanted to make sure I captured that in there because it's it is it is genuinely something that I think doesn't get the focus it deserves. And and people kind of, you know, they let things happen and and, oh, you know, I, I can't be responsible for something I haven't done wrong. Mm. So help us understand. Give our listeners that definition of human risk that you have. Okay, so the definition is, and it's intentionally broad, right? So the risk, human risk is the risk of people doing things they shouldn't or not doing things they should. And, and I deliberately came up with something that, that, that was all-encompassing and covered, you know, willful wrongdoing through to just, I'm a bit tired and I've, I've, I've made a mistake. And I wanted to cover the full range of kind of human activity and inactivity uh, as I looked at the risks that we pose. Why is this so important to you? Why is risk uh, so central to your work right now? So I, I, I guess probably looking at my, my career kind of answers the question. I, I, I found myself, so I, I started out in, in financial services. I uh, actually qualified as an accountant. Um, which we, we we don't talk about too much, obviously. Definitely sorry. not. Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. No, no. Then, that will not be discussed ever again. <laughs> and uh, it's good. I'll tell you what's good though. If you're an accountant, you get lower motor insurance because you are lower risk. <laughs> so so if ever there's a benefit to that qualification, it is disclosing that on the motor insurance piece, which back to the motorbikes is not unhelpful. Um, from time to time. So that's, that's a sort of the, the, the peripheral benefit. It's probably not but, one the Institute wants me to, to talk about too much. I, but, um, I am fascinated that they get down to 
the, the risk assessment of the careers. The work that you're doing, yeah. The, you know, and, and your role. That's fascinating. And this might, this might be the one and only true benefit of being an accountant. It, well, it sure as hell not, you know, social kudos or, or kind of, and 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 so it's a strange thing. They they ask you the question when you 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 go through that long process, and they ask you all the all the things, and then they ask you to disclose your profession. And and so if you are an accountant, you can disclose you're an accountant. So, um, you know, I, and, and somebody pointed out to me that that resulted in lower premia. So the only thing I can conclude is they've done a, a very crude assessment based on the stereotype that caused you guys so much amusement that says if you're an accountant, you are unlikely to be a breaker of speed limits and taker of huge amounts of risk. Um, Fair enough. But we digress. Oh, but, but, so, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I started with that, and then, and then, kind of moved into banking uh, for uh, a, a number of reasons. Obviously, it doesn't pay too badly. Um, and then, and then, I found myself on a, on a on a kind of interesting trajectory that involved quite a lot of regulatory work. So, I was seconded to a regulator while I was working for one firm, and then I ended up uh, working for the financial services regulator, the main regulator in the UK, and I have to stress post-crisis. They were looking for people that were not natural regulators, and so I joined the uh, the regulator and had responsibility for supervising, so this is the, 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 the kind of contact point between the regulator and the firms, uh, a number of international banks in the UK. Uh, and there was one in particular that I spent a lot of time focusing on. Um, when you focus on things, it's never particularly for good reason. Um, you know, so, so things had happened, and so I ended up uh, spending a lot of time looking at them. I then became COO at the regulator, really looking at the, the inner workings of the regulator, and then I, I, I came and joined that firm that I'd been looking at. And, and I joined in a, in a function which is uh, compliance, so looking at the rules that you have to comply with, and then something called operational risk. And in the sense of a bank, operational risk is is all of the non-financial stuff. So it's not about uh, are you lending money to the wrong people. It's not about your exposure to the stock market. It's everything from cyber risk, fraud, um, you know, general sort of things that can go wrong within the what, what what they call consequential risk. So as I was doing this this joint role of looking at compliance of what the rules say we can do and not and, and can't do and what uh, the risks the firm was running as I was looking at both these things what I what I realized was that I was in the business of influencing human decision making because mm. organizations can't be compliant of their own accord it's the people within it that determine whether you are on and then the largest single cause of operational risk within a firm uh, is people either causing problems in the first place or making them worse by the way that they react or don't react to them and so I, I, I was looking at these sort of topics and, and, and recognizing that the way that the industry as a whole, um, not just the firm I was working in, approached these topics was, was sort of completely illogical. And if we were in the business of influencing human decision making, why were we using techniques that belong in a Dickensian workhouse? You know, the kind of just, I'm just going to tell you to do this and I'm going to assume that you're up to no good. Uh, when, when actually what I realized was this, this thing that had been out there uh, that had interested me for some time. And I'd read all the books and paid probably more attention than I had to my undergrad degree, which was actually in literature, um, interestingly. And I think that tells you something because literature is, is about people. We generally don't write books about things that don't involve people. Children's books being a slight exception, but, but there you've got creatures that act as a proxy for people. And so, so there's been this fascination with what makes people tick. And so I, I basically realized that if I wanted to do this role of, of compliance and, and, and risk, um, you know, if I was in the business of influencing human decision making, why wouldn't you? copy the experts, uh, you know, advertisers, uh, governments, and you know you're in trouble when you're copying the government, um, you know, and, 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 and sort of looking at, you know, and, and, and tech companies, and you look at all those techniques and take those techniques and bring it there. So I, I started to kind of bind these things together. And, and then at the time, everybody was talking about machine risk. So, you know, cybersecurity and algorithms and all of these things and robots taking over the world. And, and I kind of was like, well, what about people? They're really important. So I, I coined this term human risk as a counterweight to uh, technological risk that everybody was, so, and, and particularly in financial services, you know, the, the obvious financial risks. And so this concept of human risk was born. Um, and so it really just came from my, from my career. And the more I looked around organizations, you know, you can see so many things going wrong, whether it's, you know, airlines have issues. You just have to search for the words human error. 
and you'll find there's a heck of a lot of things happening that are as a result of people. So I just glibly concluded that people probably were, as well as being the largest asset in many cases of organizations, also the biggest risk or the biggest cause of risk. What got you connected to behavioral science? What was the the thread, the the hit of dopamine in your brain that got you thinking that, okay, this human behavior thing is really interesting and I'm going to be I'm more interested in the behavioral science side of it? Uh, I, I, you know, I, I grew up as a, as a kid and I was encouraged by my parents to whom I'm eternally grateful just to, 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 you know, indulged to ask questions. And so I was always asking why, and, you know, sometimes embarrassingly for them, probably at the wrong time, asking questions or making comments about other people's behaviors. Um, but, but I, I, I've, I've always been curious about what makes people tick. And then, and, and so the literature piece I think is important because, you know, you're reading these books and it's, you know, stories go through with a sort of narrative arcs around around people and their decision making and and so i just i've always been interested in it and then I, and then i guess the sort of you know the, the the dan ariellis of this world started to write books uh that look cool on the bookshelf but were also really interesting and kind of brought this stuff to life and i think it was that ability to connect an academic discipline with the real world and and to start to have explanations for stuff that were bugging the hell out of me yeah. uh, that, that, you know, I found fascinating. And, and it was then this, this, you know, then being able to combine that with what I was doing at work suddenly just all sat together and I, I, I figured I'd found my calling of, 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 of this space. So, so was Predictably Irrational your gateway drug? <laughs> um, do you know, I, I probably in, in, in recent terms, but I think – uh, I, I I go back and I'm I'm re actually back to sort of politics and things. I'm rereading a lot of literature that I that I read years ago. So I, you know I think George Orwell is super relevant for what's going on at the moment. Um, I think you know Kafka is super relevant for what's going on. And so you look at the, those those people. You know they were analysing it just through them through the, the the sort of mechanism of telling a story. And yeah. and I think that that I would say those things. I enjoyed reading those books and 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 you know watching plays where uh, there was some kind of element of human dynamic where you had to you had to work out you know what was going on, what was motivating these people. So I think probably my initial hit was was in some of that kind of uh, particularly twentieth century literature. Uh, but yeah, if you're asking specifically about kind of uh, behavioral science literature, then then I think Mr. Aria, uh, you know. Uh, Sorry, not Mister at all. Uh, Dan Ariely is um, is is right up there, and you know, and 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 you know, Kahneman clearly again was another uh, sea change. Yeah, it, it's interesting to me because I find that literature, um, plays, movies, those those elements that are looking at the human condition and various elements really do shine a light on that motivation is just they don't have the names and they don't have some of the background. But if you look at the books like A. George Orwell in 1984, or you look at, you know, Kafka or any of the other kind of elements that are driving, that, that show how people are reacting in these situations, it really is this this treaty on, on human behavior and, and motivation. And why are people doing that? They just don't have the names on it. So it's, it's, I find it really fascinating myself. So, and and I, I agree with that. I, th I think you know TV shows in particular. Look at the stuff that's really popular. Game of Thrones. Yeah, is all around. You know, t ignore the setting. I find there's some dragons and some stuff, but but this is all about power play and interaction between people. And then recently, I loved it. If you guys have seen Chernobyl, the uh, HBO Sky series, which which I blogged about as I did some analysis on as a sort of human risk piece. And, and that's just the fascinating, you know, what motivated people to do stuff at the time. And it's beauti beautifully kind of rendered on screen. But, it's, but, but, but you know, what engages you is the, is the human interaction, not necessarily the, the nuclear disaster. So I think we've just carried that through into the video age now. Yeah, I believe I, I have not seen Chernobyl, but I've heard it. And I think I've read your your piece on that. And I'm like, going, all right, that's on my that's on my watch list. So there we go. Well, I, I'm, I'm fascinated, though, about the literature uh, part, uh, both in terms of what uh, what you studied in college and in, in university. What what was the, the focus of the literature? Was it more, uh, you know, the classics, the romanticists? I don't, I don't know, whatever group. Uh, and then what about, you know, other authors like uh, Ibsen or Somerset Mom or uh, Sinclair Lewis? So, you know. Know, are, are, are these the kind, you know, the slightly dystopian uh, sort of views? But did they have a did they have an influence on your 
willingness to look at the human condition from a different perspective? Yeah, I think so. Um, so, so I actually I, I covered sort of European literature, um, and and it was it was a pretty you know I look back on it and and it was a pretty cool degree because you could study what you wanted, what you were interested in, and, and and what spoke to me was were things that explained the world that I was living in. Uh, and so I was particularly fascinated, for example, by German literature that looked at the Second World War, um, that explored the, you know, both both the kind of the, the the issues around that, but also how you know the East German literature and how they were coping with that system and the ways that artists uh, and writers found to be able to deal with the pressures they were under. And so they, you know, there were there was this this great movie called Inner Emigration where they found they wrote about ancient worlds because they couldn't write about the world they were actually living in. And so they ah. found an escape route that, that way. And so, so the ones that really resonated me were, were, were sort of the, the, the ones that really, uh, you know, the, 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 where I could recognize the worlds that they were talking about um, because the world felt sort of semi-familiar, even if it, it went into interesting spaces. Um, but, but I think, uh, you know, I also, also quite enjoyed going back. And if you look at some of the great writers uh, from way back when, um, you know, they're dealing with the same issues. Shakespeare covers all of the emotion. If you, if you look at the full body of work, covers the full range of emotions and passions and human intrigue uh, that I think are, are picked up later on. It's just done in a, in a slightly different way. With tremendous insight as well, tremendous clarity of what is actually happening within inside rather than just on the outside. Well, and I like it. it you look at Othello and you look at the nudges that happen in Othello to push Othello to the point where he is. I mean, it's it's nudge in 15 whatever <laughs> context and yeah. all sorts of things influencing those decisions. Crazy stuff. So, all right, Christian. So you have written the five rules on human risk hmm. uh, that I have found I've read each of them when you've kind of posted them out there and I found them fascinating. So for our listeners, could you summarize them? I know you probably can't get into depth on each of those, but let's just talk a little bit like the, the five, five rules of human risk. Yeah. So these, these are, these are implicitly things that are not happening stuff people don't think about. And that's kind of why I wanted to pull them out. And so, so going through the, the five and I, and I started with about, you know, 20 and then kind of was like, actually, that's a subset of this one. And, and, you know, so, so we kind of shrunk them down because five, five felt like a decent number. Um, and so, so the first one is human risk can be managed, but not eliminated. And, and what I wanted to emphasize there was, was really that we need to just, we need to accept the fact that people are going to do things that pose risk and we can't try and eliminate that. And yet many of the frameworks that we have and many of the, the approaches sort of make a presumption that we can get things down to zero. Um, you know, I see, I see sort of transport authorities saying things like, you know, our aim is to have zero accidents. Yeah, which which sounds great, but it's just insane from a deliverability perspective. Because to have zero accidents, you would be uh, literally probably not permitting anyone to drive under any circumstances whatsoever, right? Because because it and 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 so so people you know in firms they talk about zero tolerance. Now sometimes that's really important, and and things like you know bullying or, or racism or, or or fraud very very important to eliminate that but you cannot eliminate the entirety of, of of humankind and and nor is that desirable because actually you want the reason we hire people nowadays particularly in the knowledge economy is to be creative and to to think and to to be innovative and so if you don't allow people to to make mistakes you will never end up with the the you know trial and error and so innovation requires making mistakes. And I think it's a very strange world where we sort of go, you know, nobody's ever allowed to make a mistake. Well, then no one's ever going to innovate. And, and okay. so for me, it's critical that we identify the things we don't want to have happen. And Netflix have been really good on this, actually, in terms of the they published this deck. I don't know if you've seen it, the culture of responsibility. And, no. and it, it's, it's I'll, I'll ping you afterwards and put it, in, put it in the show notes. But it's a very 21st century handbook, really. And they looked at it and said, look, how do, we, how do we run a company that's fun and interesting to work for? And they said, let's have as few rules as possible. And we'll have rules for things we really care about. Right. So let's make sure we're, we're crystal clear. We don't want credit card details to be outed in the public domain. That's unacceptable. We don't want bullying. We don't want sexism. So we draw very clear red lines there, have rules and controls around those. But we accept the fact that we employ adults 
And so we give them a certain amount of freedom, but with freedom comes responsibility. And that, for me, encapsulates what this first rule is all around, which is saying, you know, we, we absolutely, um, we can manage human risk and be intelligent about it, but we cannot eliminate its entirety. And let's not even try. Yeah. And, and the fact that you, you mentioned that they employ adults, that, that is the thing I think too many organizations forget. They, they hire these people that they think are the best and the brightest, and then they put these handcuffs on them to say, oh, but we don't trust you enough to do anything. So here are the, here's this little box that you get to play within and don't use any of your creativity, don't use any of your imagination because we don't want to take that risk of you potentially doing something stupid or wrong. So- Right, and it's 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 so idiotic. To, you know, we spend loads of money hiring the the brightest and the best, and then we and then we kind of get that, you know, remove their ability to use that that the skill that you've hired them for. I was always reminded I was hired once by someone who said um, he was like, you know, it's really important to me that people have social lives and that they. Uh, I want people who go to the theatre. And I want people who play sport. It doesn't matter what it is, but if you're going to engage with clients, have a story to tell, be a, be a human being. And so, so we hire people on that basis. Of course, yeah. the irony was that in many cases, he made people work so hard that they couldn't do the very things they'd been hired for in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was a nice idea. Yeah, you can't go to the theater and you can't play sports because you got to put that extra hours in it. Exactly. We never leave in the office. Yeah. yeah, we never lack for irony. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, that, so that was rule one. Uh, rule, rule two is compliance is an outcome, not a process. Um, I had to use the word compliance in there. Uh, at some point, uh, you'll detect from my disdain, I hate it as a piece of branding. It's appalling. Anything that you add the word officer to that makes it worse tells you the original bit of branding wasn't great. But... <laughs> What I what I do with what I, I I use the word compliance here just just as a, a one genuinely meaning compliance in the way that people probably understand it um, you know a set of rules but also just looking at the the outcome that we want from people and we say look the, the the what we want people to do is is an outcome not a process and often what people do is they focus on a process so they they decide how they're going to manage the particular risk put something in place and then focus on has that been done not looking at the effectiveness of the uh, of the piece and and it, you know so often the processes that we put in place to manage human risk and to achieve compliance uh, aren't as effective as as you know they ought to be or we think they are and so we fixate on having these things done you know people need to people need to follow this process we don't look at we it's, it's the it's the form over the substance and and I sort of, you know, I, I wanted to kind of emphasize to people, you need to look at, you know, what, what's the direction of travel on? Back to motorbikes, if you're, if you're riding a bike and you're turning on a bend, you need to look where you're going, otherwise you will come off. Um, and it's a, it's a very well-known fact. Just look where you want to go. Look at the outcome. Don't focus on the, on the process. And so that was kind of what I was driving out here. And really, you know, lots of things that we're asked to do are just dumb. And don't yeah. serve the purpose. And people people kind of cleave to these things. And anybody that's traveled, you go to certain countries and the questions they ask you, you know, to fill in, uh, you know, things like, are you here to commit acts of terror? <laughs> and you just kind of think, has anybody ever, and actually there was, there's, it's, uh, it's, your, your country is one of those, by the way. Yes, and there it was is. A, there was a British lady who accidentally ticked the yes box. <laughs> and go, but but you know it just it, it which which is sort of interesting in itself. Um, but but you look at it and go, uh, why are you asking that question? It's not like someone's suddenly going to go, oh God, you know I I am, and I wasn't going to tell you, but now that you've asked the question on the form, I cannot lie on the form. <laughs> it's just you know, and it's a pri- and this is this is a classic thing. It's a sort of primacy of of kind of lawyers' approach. Let's do this so that we position ourselves strongly if there's a legal case. Yeah. But but you neglect the fact that for for, for the remaining people, uh, you know where there isn't a legal case, and that's the majority of outcomes. It's just irritating, and dumb, and and fine. You know I'd have no choice. I have to fill in a silly form answering silly questions about what the purpose of my trip is to places. But but if you look at it within organisations, you you want individuals engaged and wasting their time with with silly processes. Particularly because human beings can smell a poor process. You know, oh, yeah. I know, I know when something is done so the organisation can cover its backside. So don't waste my time with things that that actually maybe I recognise probably don't cover the organisation's backside effectively, but you're still doing them. And so this primacy of process over outcome, I think, is really dangerous. 
Excellent. What, uh, what's number three? Number three is the human algorithm is complex and often irrational. Um, the irrational bit, I think none of your listeners will need that explaining. That's the sort of Ariely argument. But it's the, bear in mind, this is for people that don't think behavioral science. Um, and and what, I, what I've done here is really just said, look, the human algorithm. And I've used that term because, in essence, that is what's going on in our, in our heads. You know, we are running algorithms. And, and often the way that people approach those algorithms is, is logical. That's, let's try and influence people's behavior using logic. Yep. And we know that emotion and environment and a whole host of other pieces are there. So, yeah, it is important to understand that there's an algorithm going on. Uh, but the complexity of that is, is, is critical. And I think if one looks at that, uh, you know, how, how, what can you do? We can't really change the algorithm, but what we can do is change the inputs. And that's where I think changing people's perceptions starts to be quite helpful. So the message here to the, to the, to the less behavioral science infused uh, readers of this thing was, was, was really to say, look, think about the fact that, that, you know, don't assume that people are these logical, rational people. So the homo economicus kind of whole discussion but but think about perhaps we can think about the fact that if we can't change the algorithm we cannot you know somebody said to me the other day i thought it was a lovely description you know we we are basically our hardware and software is kind of pre-programmed so all we can do is play with the data that we put through that hmm. um and so, so if, we, if we're looking to change the human algorithm, let's change the, the inputs of the algorithm, and that'll then change the outputs, rather than trying to reprogram the algorithm in a way that you would do with a computer. I love this idea of thinking about the human condition as this system that is, to a very large degree, hardwired. Well, and it goes into what you always talk about, which is context matters. And yeah, so it's yeah. the context of the inputs that are going into that algorithm that are going to determine what that outcome is. And oftentimes we, we dismiss that because we say, oh, no, that software or hardwire should overcompensate for whatever that would be. That, oh, you put me in a room with full of donuts and I should know that hey, my, my software says, no, I'm on a diet. I should not eat those donuts. But damn it, it's really hard, right? So right. I'm going to probably eat a donut. Um, and and it takes you to some interesting spaces. Well, I think if if you look at prison, yeah. you know, the, 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 and and the whole theory behind behind that, and and sort of if we, you know, the, the traditionally, I'll just lock someone up so they can think a little bit harder about what they've done, and we kind of expect them to come out being model citizens. And 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 so I, uh, you know, I find I find that fascinating. There's a great book, and if you've seen it by Julia Shaw called Making Evil. No, that analyzes, you know, why do people, what does evil mean? And, and, and why do people think, and she's got some really um, fascinating sort of views on this, but she goes into, you know, looks at prison and saying, is prison effective? Yes, no. Well, the way that we typically approach it in the crime and punishment mindset is it doesn't because we, you know, we're not, we're not really dealing with the situation. We're just kind of making ourselves feel a bit better by, by locking someone up and go, that'll teach them. Yeah. And of course it doesn't, right? And, 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 and if you irritate the hell out of someone by locking them up and don't give them an opportunity, if there's no path to redemption, then, then why would you bother? Well, and you're putting, and you're putting people into a, a context, right? The situation where they are surrounded, they might go in for, for a, maybe a minor offense, right? That something, they, whatever that would be. And yet they're surrounded by people who this is a lifestyle for them. And so what are they going to be, what, what is that data that's going to be being input into that, right? It goes back to the, you know, Zimbardo and, and the Stanford prison experiment and all of his work and kind of looking at, hey, that environment caused not only changes to the prisoners and how they responded, but it also looked at changing the guards and how they viewed the prisoners and they viewed themselves. And so, and granted, there's some controversy around that whole component and that, that experiment. I think the underlying components of that are still true. And that is really this, this component. And I love the way that you talk about that. So great. I, I'm reminded of, uh, speaking of literature, Stephen King's uh, book, The Shawshank Redemption, where uh, Red is, a, is uh, in for life. And he, every, every few years he's up for parole and he sits in front of the parole board. And, and the question is, have you been rehabilitated? 
<laughs> well, what the hell does that mean? Well, I'm just in a tank, you know? How in the world could I have been rehabilitated? <laughs> it's absurd. It's just absurd. Uh, which, which brings us nicely, actually, to the, the fourth rule, which is which is to change behavior, change the environment. And again, I think for your audience, that that's kind of obvious. But but for those that are less aware of this, and and my point here was was all too often within organizations, you know, the way they perceive uh, poor behavior or behavior that they don't want from their employees uh, is is there's something wrong with the person. And, and the start point is, you know, the first question that's always asked is who's, who's, who's responsible? And you frame the whole thing around bad employee, bad person, let's reprogram that person rather than saying, well, what, what were the contributing factors in the environment? And, and I've just seen so many examples where it's not even considered that the environment might have some part in it. It's immediately, let's go, let's go find the names of the guilty. And if necessary, we fire them or we discipline them or, or whatever, rather than, you know, I, I think the start point should be what in the environment could have contributed to this happening. And, and sure, if somebody's done something that's negligent, that's irresponsible, that's whatever, well, you can pick that up, but let's not start with that, that presumption. Um, and there's a, there's a great um, book by an Israeli professor called Yuval Feldman, uh, yet another one from the Israeli school of amazing behavioral scientists. And he yeah. specializes in behavioral law. And if you've seen this stuff and, and so look at how do you write legal systems that think about the way people actually behave rather than the way we'd like them to. And so he looks at, you know, how do you get the most? And, and, and his book is called The Law of Good People, because he says, we always start by writing rules for bad people. And we, we, we focus on, he said, we should focus on the good people. And, and, and I'm paraphrasing hugely here, but, you know, it's quite right. If you're a really bad person, you don't care what the law says. You're going to do it anyway. And what we don't look at is the unintended consequences for the, for the majority of people who, in most circumstances, want to do the right thing. And so for me, this focal point around an individual is just the wrong way of looking at things. Um, and we should, we should look at, um, you know, the, the, the environmental circumstances before we start to wonder whose fault it is, particularly if you're, if you're investigating something. Um, you know, you want to you make sure that you have, uh, you've got the, the full facts from people, and they're not going to tell you the full facts if, you are, if one of the consequences of being open and transparent is you get into more trouble. Right. Yeah. So it, it, when you're talking environment inside an organization, you're not talking the bricks and mortars per- particularly. You're talking culture. You're talking the, the kind of unwritten rules of how people operate. Is that? It, it, yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, I do mean the physical environment to an extent. Um, yes. And then sometimes that can be highly relevant. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, uh, you know, things like the culture, but also things like, you know, how easy is it to comply with the rules? So when I, one of the, some of the bits of work I was, I was doing when I was um, still employed in, in, in financial services was looking at saying, you know, is there a correlation between very long rules and people breaching those rules? And unsurprisingly, right, the answer is yes, because if you write a fat rule book that's 500 pages long, from an organizational perspective, that's awesome because Ooh. I've covered myself off. Uh, you know, we've got it's in this book. They will have known better. But, but actually, from the individual's perspective, you've got, it is not surprising that people don't bother reading 500-page policies. Yes. And so the, the you know, I, I always look at sort of, the, you know, we have to look at all of the factors that we know of. And clearly, there will be a whole host that we don't and say to ourselves, what is it that could have contributed? Now, in the examples I've come across, both as a regulator and a, and, a, and a practitioner, there are always things within the organization's controls that it could do better. And, and I think if the start point was, let's fix those and then worry about people, we'd, we'd be in a much, much better much better place. And, and the focus would be right. And I think people would engage with investigations and processes if they thought there was a chance that actually the environment, the organization might end up bearing more of the responsibility than they do themselves. Yeah. We talked with Roger Dooley a few months back, and he has a new book out called Friction and various different things. But you're, what you're talking about is that friction, that 500-page rule book is highly friction, you know, it's a high friction component. People are not going to do that. If you were to summarize that down into a one page, here are the key, as you said, like these are the things that we can absolutely not do. All right. Then you're getting to, you're reducing the friction. People are more likely to A, 
read it and then B, comply with whatever that would be. And so I think those are those factors that, again, we we so often want to just check that box as an organization and cover our butts and say, but look, we wrote it out in black and white on page 428. It was written out there in three paragraphs of legal speak. And right. why didn't you understand it? Yeah, and, and, and I, I, I like looking – so I always try and find analogies in the real world, as I call it, yeah. for, for what's going on, and say to myself, you know, what can we learn? And, and more often than not, there are examples of things done better elsewhere. So if you, if you take the average car, right, the way they design cars is so that the average driver can just jump, you know, jump in, providing a license and everything else, right? You can just get in and you can drive off pretty much under average circumstances without having to read the manual. And and the, the way they design it, the dashboard operates roughly in an analogous manner. And the manual is what you go to when a funny light comes on, there's a strange sound you don't quite know. And the way the manual is structured is helpful, right? It, it, it helps you solve your problem. And, and so the whole thing has been designed to allow people to engage very quickly and make it, make it easy for people to kind of operate. Uh, I think organizations often go the opposite way around, right? Which is before you're allowed to get into the car, you must read the engineering manual, understand the engineering manual, and then, and then we'll let you drive the thing, which, which is presented to you in an utterly incomprehensible way. And I think that, that if, we, if we turn around and took a leaf out of the car manufacturers and said, let's start designing environments for the way that people operate, for the scenarios they find themselves in. You know, you see lots of examples of training programs within organizations where they, they, they're teaching you obvious stuff. And you can, you can kind of see it, you know, in the, in the sort of response to Me Too, there's lots of organizations who are getting concerned about these things. So they send people on training that is kind of like, you know, is it okay to rape someone? Yes or no? Right. And, and it's just it's like it's just idiotic. That's not the dilemma people are facing in the real world. You know, they want to be guided through real life situations that they might come across. And we need to start speaking to people in a language that reflects the realities. You know, stop pretending the world is black and white when we know it's gray and start speaking to people and, and, and recognizing the nuances of the challenges that are there and give them the information. You know, it's, it's, it's the classic behavioral science frameworks. So I look at the, you know, the, 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 the behavioral insights teams, East framework, for example, yes. you know, easy, attractive, social, timely, really simple. If you just, if you just start with that stuff in a, in a kind of compliance uh, risk management world, you'll go a hell of a long way to getting it right. And, and, you know, I, I, people will sort of turn to me, well, have you, have you tested this out? I just see so many examples of things that are so poor that are so far away. It's not, there's no point in testing stuff when you're miles away from anything that's, that's sort of even objectively sensible. And, and, and by the way, the, and the reason that they're asking the question is because their situation isn't working. Like what they're right. doing is failing. And yet they're saying, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. You've got something new. Is that proven? Are you sure about that? And and then uh, the, 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 final, um, the final rule is just because you can doesn't mean you should. And, and this sort of has a, I've left it till last because it has two aspects to it. One is, I think we need to start endowing people within organizations with a bit more of a sense of personal responsibility. So uh, all too often, organizations in the way that they treat their employees send a signal that the employees are not trusted. And there's a classic example of somewhere that, that I saw once where they had locked down YouTube. And by YouTube, I mean every single sort of, um, you know, video streaming site. Oh. And you kind of look at it and go, well, why would you do that? Because actually what it does is it stops people watching TED Talks. It stops, you know, there's a lot of decent content that's highly relevant to people's roles. But you look, So the first argument you get is bandwidth, which I kind of buy if, if, if you know, if, I don't know if the, the Super Bowl is on or Wimbledon tennis or something. But you can, you can sort of throttle it at that point or stop those things being streamed. But generally speaking, bandwidth shouldn't be an issue. Then the second argument you get is cat videos. You know, people will spend their whole day watching cat videos, to which I say, one, if, if it's the case, if, if, if that floats someone's boat and they get, you know, creativity from watching it, what's the harm? Um, and, and, and secondly, even if somebody spends their whole life watching cat videos, that's not a YouTube or a video problem. That's a, that's a kind of employee challenge that's got nothing to do with the mechanism they've chosen. Well, and, and you hired adults, right? Right. You're supposed right. to have hired adults that are competent and... Right. And then, and then, and then the final argument is, you go, well, people might watch pornography all day. Right, which, uh, if people think that's okay, you've got a whole host of bigger problems, and of course you can, you can lock that stuff out. But what I find interesting about that approach is it sends a signal 
that systems are, are, you know, covered everything. So therefore, I approach everything with an attitude of, oh, well, they've locked down YouTube. If I can, you know, if a system will let me do something, I don't need to think for myself. And I think this is something we need to instill in people. We need to allow people, back to the Netflix example, we need to allow people to screw up slightly, stop the really severe stuff, but give them a sense of agency and responsibility so that they can start to think for themselves. Because if you've, if you've removed that ability... People will just go, well, you know, my world is set. I'm doing what I'm told. And if, I, if the system lets me do it, it must be okay. And we've seen lots of examples where the system does allow crazy things to happen and people haven't thought for themselves. The equivalent of slavishly following your GPS unit and driving into a river happens in organizational context. So that's the, 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 the first context. And then the second one, just because you can, doesn't mean you should, is target at the organization to say, look, it is really easy as an organization to go, we have employed you, therefore we will dictate terms to you. We will tell you what to do. We will impose dress codes. We will impose a whole load of restrictions on you. And and I say to organizations, I think that's really, you, sure, there's times where that's appropriate and you should do that. And, and you, you have the ability to, you know, force somebody to carry a security badge to be able to get into their office. You can dictate, you know, where they work. There's a whole load of things. It's perfectly reasonable. Health and safety would be a good example where it's perfectly okay for you to be dictatorial but there are lots of other examples where you need people to comply in a kind of qualitative way where you need them to think for themselves where you need them to be responsive to the situation and where a kind of very robotic response to things will produce the outcome that you don't want and therefore i say to organizations just because you can uh, put pressure on people in certain ways over control them doesn't mean you should do it think about the negative consequences the things that you know the unintended consequences of your control framework fascinating yeah i i i i, I think about this uh this big challenge though that you're putting out to people getting people to think for themselves is really really hard it is much much easier for us to think in black and white than to, to think in in the nuances to actually consider the consequences or to think about a situation it's a it's a big damn challenge that that you're putting uh, in front of us in a world where we like the idea that GPS will just take us wherever we want to go and okay occasionally we end up in the river but <laughs> but I, but I think uh, you know if we don't get to grips with these issues, we're gonna, we, 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 you know, we, we're not getting the most out of society. So organisations will fail if they don't get a handle on this stuff and start thinking about these things. Because, um, you know, it's the the uh, human risk for me is critical. You can you can see it. if if a single employee within an organisation does something that is social media worthy. You know, let's take that United Airlines situation, for example. That can cause you no end of damage and no end of harm in a way that was never previously the case. You know, in the old days, the only person that could really cause reputational risk were, were, were the, and it was, of course, always men in the C-suite because they were the ones with the fax machines, the telex. They spoke to the press. You know, it was their, their, their decisions. Every single employee has the capability to cause their organization reputational and beyond risks. And I, and I think we have to just recognize that. And, and the control frameworks that we had in place that, that might have been fit for purpose, and I question whether they always were in the 20th century, don't uh, help us deal with a world where there's, you know, information flow is much greater, there is a societal expectations are shifting. And if we don't start to address some of these issues, I think organizations are going to be taken down by some of these new challenges coming over the hill, which if we geared up and used our employees co correctly, you could help to mitigate. And, you know, the best form of human risk mitigation is other humans. Uh, well, Christian, thank you. This has been fun. It has been informative. And I am absolutely positive that our listeners will have loved this. So thank you very much for, for joining us here at Behavior Groups. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavioral Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our algorithmic brains ah uh, yeah you were you were really hit by this idea of the human algorithm for decision making right yeah well as as christian said he said uh the human algorithm is complex and often irrational and just yeah. to think about how we operate as a human algorithm it, it put things in a perspective for me that was really interesting and i felt insightful 
Yeah, it is insightful because it, it's different, right? There's, there, I, I, we don't hear the the comment about decision making being a human algorithm, and that's exactly what it is, though. It is. It's, we it's have a set of formulas. It, we have these components within our brain of how we we look at things, and then how we process those things, and then the decisions that are based off of those. Yeah. And what I loved about that is that we often think of algorithms as relatively simple. You know, x input, y input. Z input, you know, calculate all those up and boom, you get, you know, your output. The thing that he said that I thought was really fascinating is that we we have to understand that we have this algorithmic mind uh, and that we often do. And particularly in business, we often think, well, this is how people operate, right? It's the, it's our famous incentive components like, oh, well, if we just pay them more, oh, right. you know, they will do more because obviously the algorithm is we we work for pay and the more pay we get, the harder, the, the harder we will work, which is, yeah. you know, it's a very simple algorithm. But the fact of the matter is we have a very complex algorithm and in addition to that algorithm, it, it often is an irrational algorithm. That's the emotional side of what comes into play. So, so that business, when we put those rules in place that are those proponents in place that are based on this human algorithmic simple component, it really is, is the wrong way of going about it. So why does irrationality come into our, our algorithms? Why do you think that that's the case? I, I, because we have a human brain that works through chemicals and electronic components that is shaped by both DNA and environment and a number of other factors that come into it. It isn't a algorithm that is a computer software program. It is a messy, weird kind of component that, as you know, that algorithm changes based on the context in which you're living in. Um, it is based on, you know, your history with various different things. So there's all these factors that come in and it's so complex and so hard to fully understand um, that I think there's definitely these these irrational components in there just because we're human. Yeah, I'm glad Christian pointed that out in, in, in that way. I, I agree that that was really insightful. I thought that that was really cool. All right, so what do you want to groove on? I, well, change the environment. You know, that's like one of my favorite, uh, one, of, uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, from anyone was Buckminster Fuller's comment about don't change the man, change the environment. Now, he was talking about physical spaces. You know, he was a designer and he created the geodesic dome. And so there's... He was thinking about space, and if and architects like Frank Lloyd Wright did this. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think we've we've talked about this before. How how architects can use the physical space to influence how we feel about a place. Right? Yeah, you know how we, we walk into some buildings and we feel grandeur. You know, the, you walk into a, a a huge church. You know, with monstrous. You know, the, especially the neo gothic. You know, churches were were built to be enormous so that humans were really small and they they felt the presence of God as being enormous. They felt and, that awe. That awe and God's big and I'm small. Yeah, you know, and 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 so physical spaces make a difference. The environment that Christians talking about is complex. And important. And he's not talking just about the physical environment. He's talking about the cultural and other environments as well. And I think that's a really important piece. Total aside, because that's what we do. That's what we do. Oh, rabbit hole. Rabbit hole alert. So (laughs) Buckminster Fuller, right? My father was not a big reader at home. He he would go down and he'd he'd carve and he'd paint and he'd do a whole bunch of stuff with his. My mom was a huge reader. My 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 father was not. However, the one book that I remember him reading was uh, like this book, Mister Fuller book. And so I remember reading that when I was in high school. It was about the life of Buckminster Fuller and the geodesic dome and how he thought. And he was an interesting and crazy man. He was. Eccentric. <laughs> he didn't talk for like a year or something, if I'm remembering this right. Now, it's been a long time since I read yeah. that, but he was just in his brain. Anyway, so that was my little rabbit hole <laughs> going down. But. You know, that's an interesting thing. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, there you go. I think it's fascinating. I want to I actually want to hear more about your dad's carving and painting and stuff, but at some later date. Oh, well, there we go. So um, so uh, when Christian was talking about uh he brought up The Law of Good People, the book by um by Yuval, uh Yuval Feldman. Yeah. And this idea that we end up 
focusing on focusing our rule writing on people who are doing bad things and not focusing on and so so our natural rule writing is stop this you know, curb this you know limit this rather than writing rules that enhance and engage uh, employees, for instance, you know, yeah. create an environment where the good people are naturally going to do the, you know, good things. They might screw up from time to time, but give them an opportunity to feel empowered. Uh, and we, as uh, within the corporate world, do a terrible job of that. I think about HR departments are so uh, have been trained after so many generations of how to protect the company. So the rules are so many of the rules, not all the rules, but so many of the rules are built around how can we stop bad people from doing bad things rather than how can we engage the most people in doing the right things? Well, and I think it it brings up a couple things for me. One is because we have put these rules in place and because we focused on the bad things, that is primed, right? Well, right. We, so all of a sudden we are looking at this and the culture is about, wow, all these bad things that could happen or are happening. And I, I go back to when I worked at ITT Consumer Finance when I first graduated college and we were handing out loans. We are the lender of rest resort. And so we would give loans out. And I would have to call probably about 5% of those people at the end of the month because they were late and we had did our own collections and I'd have to go out and do collections and all these other fun things. But that was about maybe 3 to 5% of the overall population. But that's who I focused in on. And so that other 95% after, after even just a couple months, when I was in giving them a loan, I was I was thinking in my head, how are these, you know, am I going to have to call you in, in, in a month or two months? Am I going to have to go out and chase after you and, and try to collect the, these payments on you? When the vast majority of the people, I mean, over nine out, of, nine out of 10 people, more than that, right? And 95 out of 100 people, that would never be an issue. They pay perfectly fine. But because my focus was on that 5% because it was vivid and emotional and different things and it was prime because that's what my job, that's the other part of was. my job was, right. was doing that, that was there. So that was that's one part of it. Uh, I, and there's an example of uh, a company that uh, both of us worked for that has, you uh, in recent years implemented something they call the summer of love. And I think this is a great example of having a rule that is engaging and supportive. And during what they call the summer of love, you know, basically between uh, the U.S. holidays of Memorial Day and Labor Day, the rule for dress code is wear anything you want as long as you don't get arrested. <laughs> it, it's a great rule, isn't it? Wear anything you want as long as you don't get arrested. And the interesting thing is, after being there through you know several years of this, the status quo bias. And by the, you know we've got culture and we've got status quo and we've got normal things of, of relationships. No one shows up in anything inappropriate. No one. Everyone comes to work in a very sensible you know, uh, decent clothing. There's we never hire adults, right? We hire and we adults. hire people yes. that are good and positive. And so let's not, let's, let's embrace that. Let us embrace that component. Okay, Kurt, you said that there were two things. What was your second thing? So it reminded me of positive psychology, which came about in the late 70s kind of component. It, whereas before psychology had focused in on what was wrong with people. It was always looking at our neuroses and our various different things. And it wasn't looking at, well, what are all the things that we do really well and how do we enhance and make those better? So so how do healthy people get more healthy? How do, how do positive people get more positive? And so I think once that started coming in, it led to a, a whole change in a lot of the psychology. I think it was a, a lot of the stuff that led into behavioral economics and looking at some of those components and various other aspects of this. So that piece for me is really kind of highlighted in this as that, well. That's cool because the nudge certainly is a, we're treating people like adults. We're giving them a, 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 a classic nudge of we're going to move the cookie jar. You know, we're just going to move the cookie jar and put it in a translucent jar just to remove that major temptation at the at the front of the cafeteria. That's a great example of you're still an adult. You can choose what you want to do. 
but we're just going to use a little bit of behavioral science to move it out of the way so it's not the number one thing that you go to when you enter the cafeteria. You're not saying we are no longer having cookies in the cafeteria. You're not saying there are no cookies allowed in our (laughs) corporate world. Or if if your BMI is too high, then you can't have cookies. Or we're going to... We're going to charge a fine for every cookie that we, that you have, or an additional, you know, penalty on (laughs) top of that. Yeah. Cookie tech. So yes, we are adults and and using that component of changing that environment in order to help nudge in the right way and yet allow that individual freedom. Yeah. Okay. All right, listeners, thank you for putting up with us and and listening again. We appreciate it as always uh, and uh, hope that you will, if you're in the Philadelphia area, we hope that you can join us on October 17th. Uh, And for those of you who aren't, um, be looking out for that 100th episode. It's going to be fun. And if you do so like to do any of that uh, stuff, let us know because we would definitely want to talk to you. About doing more, yes. All right. In your city. In your city. All right. 